Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the ultimate measure of a man, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And we see this very truth come alive in a passage of Scripture that I'd like for us to uh, look at and study and learn and be transformed by this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 1. You'll find that on page 737 of your church Bibles. And if you're new here to Windsor Road, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Randy. I'm privileged to serve as the lead minister here at the church. We're in a series called Unreligious. That's an odd name for a church, isn't it? Unreligious. What's that about? Well, that is about growing our faith to the degree that faith is just not a matter of just going through the motions. And it's not just a matter of uh, coming across as a holier-than-thou, obnoxious, annoying believer. It is about truly following God in a world that uh, can be indifferent to God. And that's what we see in Daniel chapter 1. So follow along with me in your church Bibles, page 737, as I read Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldean and Babylon are interchangeable words, okay? The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, 
whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in Every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Can you imagine living in that world? Can you imagine living in a world where a foreign power is encroaching your borders and they are prepared for an invasion and they're going to take over? And there you are, powerless before. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Last week, after first service, I met a young lady uh, whose name was Ira. There she is in the middle. It's the Tim and Lisa Johnson, their family. There's my wife, Sarah. And then in the middle uh, is Ira. She's from Ukraine. We had a delightful conversation. She's in ministry there. At the conclusion of our conversation, we prayed together, and she said to me, she looked at me, locked her eyes, and said, Pastor, would you please pray for my country? I knew what she was talking about. The events that have happened in her country over the past year and the uncertainty of the future. So we prayed together before she was ready to go back to Ukraine. I can't imagine, I can't imagine living in that world with such an uncertain future. And that's what we see happening in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that Jehoiakim, who was a king of Judah, and he was just one of a long line of really bad kings in Judah, And at last, Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty army of Babylon is crouching over Jerusalem, ready to pounce. This is Jerusalem. 
This is the city of David. This is the holy city. This is the city of which Psalm chapter 48, verses 1 through 3, Jerusalem is the, the, the perfection of all cities, the, the joy, the beauty of the world. This is the city of which the psalmist says, uh, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a citadel. It's that city. And within that city is the holy temple. From the Hebrew point of view, the center of the universe, the portal between heaven and earth. It is this city and is at this temple that a pagan king, a pagan heathen emperor, Nebuchadnezzar is about ready and eventually besieges, assaults, pillages, and rapes and destroys the holy city of Jerusalem. And not only that, Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the holy vessels of the temple. Now, mind you, these are some of the vessels which at some time in, in Israel history, that if the wrong person actually even touched those, they would drop dead. But here, Nebuchadnezzar gets his heathen, greasy fingerprints all over them, and he takes them as trophies to his pagan temple in his capital, Shinar. Where is God? What is going on? How can we even make sense of this? Has God gone AWOL? And just when the reader is about ready to come to that very conclusion, we need to read verse 2. Verse 2 informs us, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. Do you get it? Nebuchadnezzar didn't take Jerusalem. God gave it. And God gave the temple vessels as well. And God gave Jehoiakim. God did that. At the very outset of this book, it is very clear who is in charge. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's God. God is sovereign. You need, to let, you need to just sit in that for a little bit. Because whatever comes to your life, whatever comes your way, first comes your way because it's passed through a sovereign God. And even though you may not understand it or get it or figure it out, God's got it figured out. And he wants our trust. God's in charge here. Not Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Jehoiakim. He gave Jerusalem. He gave the temple articles. And, and you might be asking yourself, well, why would he do that? Well, that's a great question. I'll answer it very quickly. Deuteronomy 28. <laughs> Just write that down. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 basically says this. And Deuteronomy 28 happened before Israel even occupied the land. Deuteronomy 28 basically says, God says, look, if you will follow me, love me, serve me, worship me, put me first, then I will flood you with blessings. 
You'll have so much blessings. You'll have all that you need. You can pass it on. And others will have all that they need. If you will just do that. If you will just do that. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. He'll make your path straight. You trust me and I'll make your path straight. But if you don't trust me. God says I promise you I'll wreck your path. Or that is, I'll withdraw myself, and that's when the Nebuchadnezzars will come. See, that's what happens. We decide we don't want God, and finally God says, well, okay. And then when he leaves, others come. I mean, and that's exactly what happened. For a while, Israel had followed God, but then they neglected God. And in fact, uh, Second, Second Chronicles says they neglected God to the degree that there was no remedy. No remedy. There's nothing else that could be done. And God withdrew, and Nebuchadnezzar came. And that's why God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And he gave Jehoiakim, he gave the city, he gave the temple vessels, and he gave some human capital. You see that? Nebuchadnezzar is managing an empire now, so he's got to figure out how he's going to do that. And he's going to do that through some of the Hebrews, he's going to manage the territory of the Hebrews by means of some of the Hebrews. So he takes the brightest and the best and the most intelligent and the, the, the most handsomest of the Hebrew young men and he carts them off to Babylon. He takes them into the place of Shinar he, and he's going to make Babylonians out of them. So he's going to just take away and strip off all semblance of their Hebrew heritage. He's going to give them Babylonian wardrobes. He's going to teach them Babylonian language, Babylonian philosophy, Babylonian literature. He's going to call them Babylonians. Change their names. Daniel is Belteshazzar. And we know the Babylonian names of his friends probably more than we know the Hebrew names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Kind of just rolls off your tongue. Because that's, that's who they, he made Babylonians out of them. He's going to manage his kingdom through them. And four of those were these four. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. God's going to work through them. In, here it is, an unimaginable place. Talk about an unimaginable place. Let's just pause the button there and talk about that for a moment. God is going to work in Babylon? But I thought Bab- Babylon in the Bible is synonymous with human power, human arrogance, human achievement, human pride. God's going to work through Babylon? Yeah. He's going to work in Babylon. He's going to use these four to affect his will in Babylon. What an unimaginable place. Kind of sounds like us. Kind of sounds like where God has put us. Has God not put you among Babylonians? He's put you in a place where he wants you to represent him in a way that only you can represent him. And um, these four, for the rest of their lives, are going to be spent doing what uh, one author calls sowing to the culture. Sowing to the culture. Daniel is going to be in Babylon for the next 70 years. He's never going back home, ever. 
Babylon is his new home. And the exiles, some of the exiles, some of the, some of the people of, of, uh, 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 of the Hebrews went to exile in Babylon, and there they returned. And God said, you, you know, make peace with this. You're not going back. You're going to be here for seven decades. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 7 says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Plant yourselves there, sow to the culture, and live there for 70 years. Now, I want to just talk about this for just a minute because I, I think you know, um, every now and then I have conversations with folks in the foyer who may be new uh, to Windsor Road. And uh, well, what brought you here? Well, we're just, we're just trying to see where God is working and we want to join him there. We want to know where God is working and we want to join him there. And I appreciate that. You know, God doesn't really want us to dream up our own dreams and then ask him to bless our dreams. Want to figure out where he's working and then join him there? That makes sense. That's wonderful. I get that. That's fantastic. Small question, how do you know where God's working? And the average American evangelical will tell you, well, where things are happening, where there is activity, uh, where there is harvesting going on. Harvesting going on. Okay, 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 but is God at work only in the harvest? You ask our farmers. It's January. Is God at work out there in the field right now? You bet. You bet. Hey, God is at work in this part of the world in more places than just October. God is at work in the sowing. And that's where God has sent Daniel and his friends to go and plant themselves in long obedience in the same direction and to be a source of truth and light in a very dark, unimaginable place. Are we that different? Are we that different? Like them, God has put us, God's put you in a place where he wants you to serve. And how important it is for you to mingle and be in the world, the world of arts, the world of media, the world of science, the world of medicine, the world of education, the world of computer science. All of these places God has put us as his representatives. He's depending on us. That's a lot of pressure. You don't say. I know it is. But don't you remember what we just sang? I know who goes before me. God was already in Babylon before Daniel got there. And God is already at work in your vocation before you show up. See? And we're called to be his reverence. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The best scientists, the best account executives, the best educators, the best in medicine, the best uh, in, in mechanics, the best in construction, the best in homemaking, they need to come from Windsor Road Christian Church. Because how in the world are you going to put in a good word for Jesus if you're a lousy lawyer? How in the world are you going to put a good word for Jesus if you do shoddy construction work, how in the world are you going to put in a good word for God 
if you can't plow a row straight in the fields, how are you going to do that? God's calling us toward a long obedience in one direction, loving him consistently day after day after day after day. And Daniel's going to be doing that for the next 70 years. The next 70 years. It's a good thing he has his friends and that life group to keep him on track. And we need that as well. God works in unimaginable places. Now, I can just hear some pushback. The pushback sounds something like this. Well, that's great, Pastor. I hear what you're saying, but you you don't know how bad my Babylon is. You, You don't know how hard it is. And you know what? You're right. I don't. I work at a church. Okay? Okay? Guilty. I know that. Our king has told us we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's it's hard. It is hard. And I don't have your temptations. I have other temptations, but not yours. But the question remains, how do we remain, how do we remain faithful to God? How do we live a holy life for him without being holier than thou? Well, that's why we've been given what comes next in verses 8 through 16. So Nebuchadnezzar is on this brainwashing program where he takes these Hebrews and he strips away their heritage and their wardrobe and their family and their name and their, their sexuality. He makes eunuchs out of them. But, but then something happens and Daniel draws a line in the sand. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel says, you can change my zip code, you can change my wardrobe, you can change my education, you can change my name, but I'm not going to eat the king's food. I'm not going to eat the king's food. Now, why would he draw the line in the sand there? I learned something new this week. I kind of always figured, well, he's Hebrew, that food's not kosher, that's why. None of the food in Babylon was kosher. (laughs) None of it. They were in Babylon. (laughs) Man, they had, you know, things that, you know, they, they would eat things that Hebrews would never consider eating. You know, they, like pork, like horse meat. Babylonians like horse meat. Who knew? Now you do. But, I, but that's not really, that's not, I don't think that's really the issue. Because if you go that kosher route, then you have to explain in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, a verse that implies, well, that he did eat those types of foods. So what's the issue? What's the issue? The issue, the issue is from where the food came. The king's food. See, right there, 605 B.C. in Babylon, To share from the king's table was an act of allegiance and loyalty and dependence on the king as unto God. And Daniel said, it's not going to happen. Not doing it. 
I'm not. I'm not going to give up my seat on the bus, period. It's not going to happen. But Daniel resolved. And then I love the verse right next. Verse 9. And God gave. Think about that for a minute. And God gave. Always follows, but Daniel resolved. Never underestimate the power of, and God gave. See, see, first time we see God giving, he's giving Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And here, in verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This guy named Ashpenaz, we met him earlier. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. So Daniel comes up to Ashpenaz and says, you know, I really would like to take a pass on the horse meat, okay? God gave Daniel favor. And this is interesting. Follow me here. The chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz says to Daniel, you know, Danny, I like you. uh, But I like my head better. And if I, you know, I got three years to get you ready before Nebuchadnezzar. And if he doesn't like how you look, he's gonna, it's literally going to be my head on a platter. So, no. You've got to eat the horse meat. Okay? Just put some salt and pepper and a little ketchup on it. You'll be just fine. Really. That's what my dad used to tell me growing up. If you don't like the lima beans, put some salt and pepper and ketchup on it. It'll be fine. It never was fine. What's the matter with lima beans? Don't worry about it. But then this is what happens. This is interesting. So Ashpenaz says no. Okay. Look at verse 11. <laughs> then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, so Daniel, the headmaster, the principal of The king's university says no, but he's going to go to the assistant principal, (laughs) okay? He just says, Daniel says, look, just 10 days, just 10 days. Work with me for 10 days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, okay? Just, you know, just work with me for 10 days. If, if, If after 10 days, you compare us, it's your call. If we don't look better than everybody else, then serve me up a side of that horse meat. And a quart of ketchup to go with it, okay? Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, verse 13, and deal with your servants according to what you see. And then verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter, tested them for 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the servant took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. Now, what was that? Was that like a miracle or something? You know, well, I don't know. I mean, your life will probably be healthier if you eat vegetables and water. Yes, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's a miracle or not. Who knows? Here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that compromise never eases or weakens the tension. Compromise only weakens your resolve. Compromise never erases the tension that we feel whenever we're tempted. Never. 
We, you know, we think, oh, if I give in, then there won't be any more struggle and I won't have pressure anymore. If I give in, it won't be there. Daniel knew better than that. He knew that when you compromise, it's not the pressure of temptation that goes away. It's the resolve. That's what goes away. Daniel's thinking, if I give in to Nebuchadnezzar at 19 years of age, what am I going to look like when I'm 40? Or 50? What remarkable foresight he said. He didn't know how he was going to, he didn't know how he was going to be treated if he said no. But he could predict the course of his life if he compromised and said, yes, if you you cheat once, it's easier to cheat a second time. Once you cross certain lines of debt and compounding debt, it's just easier to take on more debt. Or if I could just look at this porn site once, then I'll never have to look at one ever again. You know that's not true because your appetite merely grows. There's never a meal to end all meals. There's never a drink to end all drinks. There's never a sight to end all sights. It's just not how it works. There's so many lines. Once you cross the line, the tension doesn't go away. It's that your resolve, that's what's lessened. That's what I know from this. And then I know something else. Every meal they ate for the next three years, a thousand meals, a thousand meals afforded them The reminder that while they were in a foreign land, in a foreign culture, speaking a foreign language, studying foreign philosophy and foreign literature, they were citizens of another kingdom. Every time they ate, they were reminded at mealtime that they served not some puppet emperor in Babylon, but the true God of this universe. You talk about the power of a meal. That's what we see here. A thousand times, God works in unimaginable places through undefiled allegiance. But it happens time after time after time in the small things. A seemingly small decision redirected the entire course of Daniel's life. And that's the way it is. It really is. When you think about it, you are going to make Three, maybe four major decisions in your life. That's really it. And and all the other decisions are just small decisions. Just little. And if the God of this universe does not rule your life in the small decisions, he doesn't rule you. He doesn't. A thousand times. Because that's where you and I live. We live in the small and the... Paul David Tripp says that the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments, but in 10,000 little moments. And the character formed in those little moments, that's what forges your character even in the big moments. So we're talking about 10,000 moments of personal insight and conviction. 10,000 moments of humble submission. 10,000 moments of but Daniel resolved. 10,000 moments of courageous faith. 10,000 moments of fleeing the kingdom of Randy and instead pursuing the kingdom of Christ. 10,000 little moments. And look, God honored this. Not only did he give them fatter flesh. so, So here, Daniel 1 is about the three gifts God gave. 
He gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Daniel favor and compassion. And then he gave Daniel and his four friends amazing insight and learning, verse 17, and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Babylon was all about visions and dreams, and it was kind of sort of a language to learn, and Daniel became fluent in that language. Why? Because God gave it to him. And three years later, when they stood before the king, Nebuchadnezzar found them to be, what does verse 20 say? In every matter, he found them ten times better than all of his other magicians and enchanters. Daniel's post in a pagan, godless city. God put him there, that unimaginable place, so that he could influence the emperor. So God can work anywhere. Jerusalem, Shinar, Judea, Babylon. God can work anywhere. Daniel's decision to draw a line in the sand was what God used to direct his entire life. There would be no story without this. This set the course. This set the direction. It became a defining moment that directed the entire course of his life. And he didn't know the end of the story when he was living through the story. It was risk. It was risk. But if Daniel would hear, was here, if he was here right now, Daniel would say, God became real to me Not when I just ask him what his will was or when I tried to figure out where he was working so that I could go and join him. But God became real to my life when I resolved and made up my mind and when I drew a line in the sand and when I said, this far and no farther. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have have you... Have you made up your mind about anything? In any area of your life, have you resolved that regardless of the consequences, it's this far and no more? Now's the time to do it. Not in the line of scrimmage. And not even in the huddle. (laughs) It's way before the game starts. Because once you get to the line of scrimmage, it's pretty much too late. Because the action's happening. And there is a fierce contest going on. Babylon lives today. Babylon says, your body is your body. You do with it whatever you want. Christianity says, you belong to God. He owns your body. It's not yours. It's his. Honor him with your life. Honor him with your life. Listen to me, church family. God is not looking for influential people whom he can make faithful. God is looking for his people who will be faithful, 10,000 little small things that he will elevate to areas of influence. That's what he's doing. We want to think, oh, if I were just a rock star, oh, if I were a star athlete, oh, if I were a TV star, or if I were wealthy, then, you know, God's going to use them to make them Christians so they can have influence. And that's just not how it works. That's not how he works. Most of the time, this passage tells us about four Hebrews who made a decision, who resolved, who said, here I stand, I'm not going any further. And God used them 
in an unimaginable place because of their undefiled allegiance. Unimaginable place, undefiled allegiance. That's where God works. You want to join him there? Yeah, me too. Daniel's life reminds us of another servant. Another servant who would come centuries later. Daniel was forcibly taken to a faraway place. Jesus willingly came here from heaven. Daniel resolved to make up his mind. Jesus resolved that he would set his face toward Jerusalem, to the cross, and sacrifice himself. Daniel worshipped his God every time he had a meal with his brothers. Jesus has left us a meal that he has provided from his table that he wants us to partake of and share so that we might be reminded that he came to take us to an unimaginable place. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love.